Matthew is one of the four Gospels. The Gospels were the biographies of Jesus. They were written to tell people the story of Jesus, and there are four in the New Testament. And the book of Matthew was specifically written to what people group? Jews. So the book of Matthew was written to Jews in the first century to tell them um, that this Jesus that lived in your midst as one of you was the Messiah. The Old Testament had all these indicators or prophecies about who the Messiah would be. This is especially true in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And what Matthew's trying to do is he's saying, look at all these indicators, all these prophecies that were fulfilled by this Jesus. He was the one who brought God's kingdom to the Jewish people and to the world. <clears throat> so that's what Matthew's about. Last week we talked about John the Baptist, who was a prophetic figure who would introduce um, the life of Jesus, and we talked about the temptation of Jesus in the desert. So I'm going to start in Matthew 4, starting in, in uh, verse 12, and we're going to spend our time in 4, 12 through 17. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to kind of break it down. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. Now this was, in the, this was from the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Very important message for you to kind of sink into your memory banks. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That was Jesus' first message. Now, <clears throat> let's go back and work our way through this. Talk about what it meant then and what it means for our life today. The first verse here. Um, when Jesus, this is verse 12, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Now, I want to harp on this again. It's like three weeks in a row. Um, John the Baptist um, prophesied about in the Old Testament. He was the guy who introduced Jesus. So, John grew up as a relative of Jesus. He would have known Jesus. And he was actually, John the Baptist was born uh, from a miraculous birth because his parents were very, very, very old when they conceived. It was miraculous because they were very, 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 you know, gross to think about old when they conceived. And... And this made him a special kid. I mean, can you think about that growing up, knowing that, that God somehow enabled your elderly parents to conceive? You would feel pretty unique. And then realizing that you were the one that was prophesied about centuries ago. Like, you're in the Bible. You would feel like you were a special part of God's plan, right? The one who would usher in the Messiah. 
Jesus would tell us that like nobody has been born from a woman greater than John the Baptist. This is a guy who was right in the middle of God's will for his life. He was an anointed prophet, messenger of God. And we see when John had been thrown into prison. So here is a guy who was right in the middle of God's will and ends up being thrown into prison and he would be there until he was executed, beheaded, for teaching people about God. And, and I want to harp on this a little bit because we get in the book of Matthew uh, that you know God comes to this, this uh, upright woman named Mary and he says, I'm going to, um, you are going to be the mother of the Lord. And she's not married yet, she's engaged, so he brings controversy into her life because now this small town girl has to tell everybody that she's pregnant with the Lord's child. Okay, that's bringing controversy into her life and into her relationship with Joseph. And then they go to give birth to this child and there's no sanitary conditions. And now Joseph and Mary give birth and and now they're on the run for their lives for the first couple years of their family. And then Jesus goes public with his ministry and John is thrown into prison after Jesus is sent into the wilderness to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights without food. There's, there's, there's all this desert, um, difficult experience here in the first four chapters of Matthew. And here's my point. Where and what we've read so far is the part where it tells us that we should expect that things should go well for us all the time because we follow Jesus. Where's the part that says when you get into this whole thing, you can expect that everything you want in life is going to be given to you? Because I read these books. I don't usually read them. I see the titles. And I hear these sermons on Sunday morning, early morning TV and that, that talk about this prosperity, this expectation that when you're in the center of God's will, you're just going to blessing after blessing after material blessing and everything you ask for, if you ask for it in faith, you're going to get. And, and, and there's this expectation that we have to the point where when something bad comes into our life, we almost feel like we're something guilty. Like, why is this happening to me? Why is God doing this to me? What have I done wrong? Where's God in this? <clears throat> And all I can say is the message right out of the gate in the book of Matthew is the Savior of the world has come and there's controversy and difficulties everywhere, even for those who please God the most. Now that may or may not be helpful when you're going through something difficult, but what I can say is there's nothing in all of Scripture that I read that points to the fact that when we're in the center of God's will, what I could say to you is if you're in the valley right now, then you're in a long line. You're in the club of followers of God and followers of Jesus because it marks their life. Okay. So John's in prison. And it says that leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake. 
And then he goes on to say that this was prophesied about hundreds of years before this. Land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now let me take a minute on this. Can I have the, the, the map real quick here? And, and it, oh. <clears throat> okay. So let's just say that this is Israel. Okay. And you're going to have up north, this is Lebanon, this is Syria. You can't see any of that. You're going to have this lake up here that's the Sea of Galilee. The Jordan River goes down here, Dead Sea. Jerusalem is right there, big time city, okay? And then there's all this land in the middle. But up here, this was called the Via Maris, the way to the sea. This was the Sea of Galilee. Above it was Capernaum where it says that Jesus... um, this was his hometown eventually, okay? Zebulun, Naphtali, all that up there. Jerusalem, the center of Judaism down here. Um, the interesting thing here, I think, for me, for us, this area up here, okay, Jewish life, Jewish culture, cleanliness in the Jewish faith was all associated with the temple and Jerusalem and all that down here. Up here was kind of this hodgepodge of of pagan life. So you have like right here on the Sea of Galilee, um, that's that's Tiberias. It was this this center of Roman. The Romans occupied uh, the the Jewish territory um, and, and, and governed over it and, and the Jews hated them. And, and so you have this Tiberius center right here for Roman life. Up above here and here, uh, just south of Lebanon, you had Caesarea Philippi, which, which had this, the, the Temple of Pan, which was like this pagan, nasty, filthy area. And then this smattering of, of Gentile, you know, non-Jew culture all through here. Not the place that the Jews may have expected that God would birth, you know, the, the, the ministry that would redeem the world. But Isaiah, from hundreds of years ago, says that in this area, Naphtali and Zebulun, the Via Maris, the way of the sea, the region of the Jordan, that's where the light would dawn. Now, if you go to the next slide in the pictures, and hopefully they show up a little bit better, um, that's a picture of the northwest. This is this is like uh, this vantage point right here, okay? And and that is the northwest part of the um, of the Sea of Galilee. And I'm sorry for you guys over there that can't see it, but that's about an eight mile stretch right there along the coast, and on the top. Part of that is, is Capernaum. Jesus spent the vast majority of his ministry in that land right there, like an eight-mile stretch. So you really get a picture for the power of God that Jesus could spend most of his time right there and yet change the world just through that small area of land. Do I got another slide there or not? Okay, that is the synagogue there in Capernaum, which has been uncovered, just found it interesting. If you look in the book of Mark, 
Um, the synagogue was where Jesus began his ministry. They know where that is. That is the synagogue in Capernaum. So when, when you're standing there, it's like, man, this is the spot where Jesus' ministry got started. Uh, pretty incredible. And that's a look at the Sea of Galilee from the Capernaum. Um, Jesus would have spent many, many mornings uh, praying there by that lakeside right there. So anyway, just wanted to get a feel for that part of Scripture. Now, I, I want to move to something that is more important for me. Um, I said this in the email update. If, if, if I had the world as a stage for 15 minutes, um, this is what I would want to say. Um, if you look at Jesus' message, repent... For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Remember what we said repent means? It means like change. A better way to say it is stop it. It's like that forceful command to, you know, quit doing what you're doing, feel bad about it, and move on to something different. Like, you know, when I, my, my, my six-year-old knows how to whistle. And for about a year and a half now, he's known how to whistle. But this is his whistle. And, and I'll, you know, I'll be driving, and there are times where it's just like, stop it! Just stop it! Okay, that, that's, that's repent. And Jesus' message is, change, because the kingdom of God is here. Now, we may think, and, and, and I'm sure there's some of this that's, when, when we think about that kind of a message, oftentimes we think about um, Behavior that our traditions have taught us to be particularly sinful. Maybe Jesus was talking to the prostitutes or to the alcoholics or to the abortion clinics or to the um, you know, d- divorcees or adulterers or, or pedophiles or whatever it is. Repent! For God's kingdom has come near. And, and there's, I'm sure, parts of that that are true. But when it comes to the book of Matthew... The audience that Jesus and Matthew are primarily concerned about changing are the religious leaders. Because, see, the Jews believe that Jesus came to liberate them from Roman occupation. But Jesus really came to liberate them from religious oppression and slavery. Now... The message, repent for the kingdom of God is is at hand. Any of you remember where we heard that before? John the Baptist. One chapter earlier. So think about this, not in the context of bits and pieces like we tend to break up scripture, but think about if you were listening to this whole story because you're a first century Jew with like nothing else to do. And, And you're listening to this being read to you. In one minute, John the Baptist came saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Three minutes later, and Jesus came saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You're going to link the two. Because it's said right in a row. 
And if you look back in chapter 3, what you're going to see is that John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Matthew goes off on this little tangent saying that John was prophesied about. And then he gets back to the story. And the first thing that he says after repent for the kingdom of heaven is near is the story of this group of people that come to John. (coughs) And it's the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they have a lot of power. And John looks at them right after this message of repentance and he says, you brood of vipers, you snakes, you need to repent. You need to escape the coming wrath from God. Now, if you're a first century Jew, this is very, very controversial and shocking. It would have stood out. It would have jarred you. Because you're not expecting the Messiah to come and the forerunner to the Messiah to come and start slamming the religious leaders and to tell them, change. Because a lot of the things that we associate with right behavior, they are already doing, but that's the problem. Their focus was wrong. Let's push pause and let me do it this way. This says love God in case you can't see it. Can everybody see that that says love God? Is that about the right size writing? Sure you can. All right. What are some things that people who love God do? If you love God, you will. Okay. So let's just say worship. You will worship because that's what we do in church. What else? Work. Work. What do you mean? Okay. So you give and serve. You pray. Okay. So let okay. Let's say say obey. Um. Help others. Okay. So you repent. You're in a life of. Let's do this. Let's say, let's say with repent. Let's, let's kind of mix that in with you. You confess. Okay, you own up to your sin. How about read the Bible? Is that fair? I hope. <coughs> okay, let's stop there. If you love God, you do those things. Now this is, I really, really, really want you to hear this. If you love God, you do those things. Let me tell you the essence of religion. Okay, let's pretend that this is water. And this is the tip of the iceberg. Now you probably know that the tip of the iceberg is about 10 to 25% of the actual iceberg. Below the water is this giant mass of ice. Okay? Now, religion would say things like this. This is what what people who love God do. So you need to modify your behavior to that in order to please God. In other words, you should be doing this. This is the focus of your life And if you do these things, you will become pleasing to God. In other words, the kingdom of heaven 
is up here. And this is how you join that. That's religion. It's focused on the external lifestyle. Behavior modification. This was the system in Jesus' day and time. Relationship with God says that God's kingdom is kind of up here. God is holy. God is high above us. But what was Jesus' message? Change the way you think because God's kingdom has come near to you. Now, relationship with God is this. Down here in our inner selves, we realize that Jesus came to us. That while we were far from God, unable to please him really, because if you set out to try to do this stuff perfect in order to please God, you'll never make it. Can't be done. But when you realize that even though you're down here and God brought his kingdom down to you, that Jesus took on your sin and died for it, paid the price for it, to cleanse you and forgive you, that God loves you just the way you are, that you don't have to gain his love by works, that frees you, that changes you. And then, because of your wholeness, because of your love, because you receive love and you love God back and you love people back because they matter to him, suddenly your life begins to change. And now you start to read the Bible because, man, you just want to know more and more and more about, about this God who loves you. And you start to confess your sins because you feel bad that you are not walking in step with him because he loves you. And you start to reach out to others because they matter to God too and you want them to know the love that you've received. And you start talking to God because you love him and you know that he loves you. And you start worshiping God because you want to express your love for him. And you start giving your money to God's kingdom. But when we reverse that and get that wrong and say... You need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this. And we start scouring our life for these things. These things need to be symptoms of a love for God. Religion seeks to make them an end. It's like these are the ends. These are the things you do to be religious. But a relationship with God, these are the natural fruit. When it's right down here, naturally the same ice is going to break the surface. But it's a holistic deal. Okay, now the Pharisees, and this is very important because it's going to be you know, a continued theme in, in the book of Matthew. I'm going, to, I'm going to read to you. You don't have to turn there because I'm just going to blitz it. Um, Matthew 23. This is toward the end of Jesus' life, and it's called the woes to the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders, and Jesus just flat out goes off. And he says, um, you know, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, a position of authority, so you need to obey them. 
and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. They don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads on men's shoulders. I mean, that's a pretty heavy load. If you come in and say, what do I got to do to be right with God? And I'm like, you got to worship and you got to give and you got to pray and you got to serve and you got to uh, be obedient to every detail and you have to read your Bible uh, for 20 minutes a day and you have to come to you know confess your sins and things like that. And uh, all of a sudden, I have just put... If you don't first realize that God came to you and loves you as you are and has done all the work to save you, he says they love to be called rabbi. They love to be seen in the right places. He says they shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. Or if they do make a convert, they make him twice as much of a son of hell as they are. And that's strong language. Um, he goes on to say, uh, you give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill. He's telling them, you give a tenth of everything you have to God, which is a biblical standard, to give 10% of your resources to God's kingdom. But you don't care about people. That's what he says to the Pharisees. So he's saying, you know, you do. He calls them whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, ugly on the inside. He's telling them, you got these things down. but nothing's real. It's just a bunch of behavior modification. You don't love God, and you haven't accepted God's love for you. And God doesn't love you because you do those things. He's not impressed. He knows our hearts. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Now, there are a lot of you who have had Christian church experience that is still teaching this. Now remember, all these things are good things, and I think we need to evaluate our life to make sure that we're, you know, producing the kind of fruit that love for God produces. But I know that there are many religious leaders to this day who still have a pharisaical approach that you need to be doing these kinds of things to please God. And ultimately that God will love you when you do these things. And if you don't, you should feel shamed and guilt and all this stuff. The message of the gospel, and that's why it's good news, is that Jesus came down here. I want to read to you um, Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, um, and I'm going to start with... um, 22. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. What that means is that Rightness with God, the kingdom of God, is achieved through faith that Jesus came down, took on our sin, died for it, and the biblical language is through faith we are without blemish, free from accusation, holy in the sight of God. We're good with God through faith in what he did, that the kingdom came near. And because of that, these things emerge from our life. 
Anything beyond that is religion, and it's nothing Jesus wanted to see for his followers. Now, if, if you are contemplating this kind of for the first time, wow, Jesus died for me so that I don't have to gain my way to heaven through works, and now these things are just going to flow from me from love, then you just marinate on that for a while. And let me finish up talking to those of you who already know this stuff and were aware. Okay? Followers of Jesus, we follow Jesus, meaning we do what he did. We live how he lived. And what we learn in Matthew here is that Jesus brought God's kingdom to people. Right? He brought the love of God to people who did not know it. So if you follow Jesus and if I follow Jesus, then we need to be with our lives bringing God's kingdom down to earth in tangible ways. I need to be taking God's love to people who do not know it in tangible ways, and that's what it means to bring God's kingdom to earth. Now, you remember the language that Matthew used? He quotes Isaiah and says, In the land of Galilee, a great light has dawned, meaning through Jesus, light has come to the earth. Now, there's another passage in Isaiah that's very near and dear to this church. It's Isaiah 58, and it talks about bringing light to the earth. It says light is brought, and it fits this because God says what? He says, you guys are fasting and praying and bowing low like reeds. Is this what I intended? You guys are doing this stuff, expecting to be heard. Is this what I intended? No, God's not looking for that. He's looking for this connection here. He says, why don't you serve the poor? Why don't you care about people? That's how you love me. That's how you love people. And when you do that, when you share your resources, when you bring the love of God to the love of people, then your light, and this is right out of Isaiah 58, then your light will shine in the darkness like the noonday. Followers of Jesus need to be bringing light unconditionally to people who are far from God and need to know His love. That's going to look differently depending on where you're at in life and who the people are that are around you. But when we, as a church, decide that, you know, there are people in Medina County who are homeless, uh, let's do something about that. Let's let's be a shelter in Operation Homes for a week. Uh, We're bringing God's kingdom to those people. When we decide that it's no good that people are homeless in Cleveland and are without the love of God, and we tangibly show them that God loves them and so do we. We're bringing God's kingdom to those people. Maybe you have a coworker or a neighbor and, and there's some kind of an opportunity for, for you to take God's love into their life. That's bringing God's kingdom to earth bringing God's kingdom near to them. And that is what followers of Jesus do. Let me give you a couple quick examples and then I um, want to, you to contemplate this during a song. So Marcus, if you want to come up and, and get ready, you, you can. Um, <clears throat> my wife, 
I probably don't talk enough about my wife from up here, but, but she <clears throat> sort of quietly, unassumingly does some pretty major things to, to bring God's kingdom to the people around her. Um, so she works for PNC in Akron and has, a, has an important job that I really don't understand all that much. Like when I hear her talk on the phone with her work people, it's this language that I know is really important, but that I'm like 12 steps below. Um, but, but her work takes very seriously, you know, community involvement. And so she um, works with a team of people from PNC, and, and they take care of this, this preschool in inner city Akron. And this school was recently cited for some playground, you know, maintenance stuff. And in this past week, she took a team of people <clears throat> on a work day. And for the first four hours, um, they just got in the mud and weeded the place and, and just made the place more safe, did some routine maintenance. What they really did was they showed those children that somebody cares. They showed those underprivileged kids that they matter, that they are worth a nice playground. She brought God's kingdom to those kids in that situation. Another situation, um, a, a few weeks ago, I had my, my 16-year my reunion. You may think that's an odd year, and it is. We had never had one, and somebody decided we needed to have one. And this part's going to get cut out of the web um, um, broadcast for, for several reasons. Um, but somebody decided we needed a 16-year reunion, and we had one. And, um, and we showed up, got out of the car, <clears throat> and the first person we met was a guy who I knew immediately who he was, and just kind of, you know, back then, socially awkward, um, didn't have a lot of friends, and, and he was with his girlfriend and this other girl who back then was socially awkward, didn't have a lot of friends, sat by themselves in the lunchroom kind of thing, okay? This was, this was you know, 16 years ago, though. Surely life had changed, right? So we get into the reunion and into this, this um, Italian, I don't know, banquet hall, and, and everybody had kind of formed their tables, and all the tables were full, um, or for the most part full, and then there was this big table with just those three. Um, they hadn't found or been invited to a table, just like, you know, 20 years ago. And, and this bothered my wife. I mean, we're here at my 16th reunion. I'm thinking, uh, you know, how you just kind of revert back. So I'm, you know, nervous socially looking around and stuff. Um, and it really bothered her that this that these that this th- group of three were by themselves at the table, and and nobody seemed to go over there or anything like that. And she keeps saying, "Alex, they're over there by themselves," and I'm like, "I know. After we eat dinner, I'll go over and say hi." Um. Next thing I know, my wife is saying, "Hey guys, come on over here, sit at our table." We'll, we'll get some more chairs. And we're like all cramming together and make it room. And, and the other eight people at our table are mortified. <clears throat> but 
But they came to our table and they were included because solely because of my wife. And they wrote on Facebook the next day in that little chat room, we had a great time last night. It was so good to connect with everybody and in a very practical, tangible way. My wife was aware of what was going on in the room, found somebody who needed to feel the inclusive love of God and brought God's kingdom into that Italian banquet hall at a reunion that she wasn't even really a part of. That's bringing God's kingdom to this world. That is following Jesus. And we need to be aware how we can not only receive God's love, but then follow the footsteps of Jesus and bring his love to our everyday life in tangible ways.